Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast. live. Jay, did you, you know, you said you had to run back to the office, so I don't know if you're joining me on this, but I did grab a beer to have on the podcast. Yeah. You know, I decided to go ahead and do that too. And I even, I brought a beer into the office here and uh, I went with a Kentucky beer. I went with a uh, country boy uh, cougar bait tonight. So nice. Is that a blonde blonde ale you said? Yes. Nice. Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast started recording, but you can't say there's a lot of pediatric dentists out there that have a, what is a 82 inch swordfish mounted on the wall behind them as we record. That's a, that's a pretty cool thing. I'm not going to make you retell the story, but I always think it's kind of cool. You know, like when dentists share their office, like it tells a lot about the pediatric dentist when they post what their office looks like, like, is it cluttered? Is it very simple? You know, it's cool. when you add a little bit of character and put something cool in the office, like a, like a sailfish. I think I see some other things. Like, I don't know if that's a, another fish up above to the left, but I like that you got a little of your personality up there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm in i I'm in a little bit of a rural area here. So, uh, I've got the sailfish here that you can see behind me of, uh, I got a couple ducks and, uh, a few deer roaming around too. So uh, maybe a couple of Terry Redland prints if you're a DU fan and uh, kind of, kind of, kind of comes with the territory. Yeah. And uh, so we didn't talk about this a lot, but Jay, you're, you're actually not as far away from me as I thought, you know, I, before we hopped on, I looked up, uh, I think it's Owensboro in Kentucky, but you're actually kind of halfway between St. Louis and in Nashville. But as a crow flies, you're not actually that far away from kind of my territory. It looks like. No, you know, that's the funny thing. I grew up here in Kentucky and I've lived here all my life and uh, I grew up more in central Kentucky. And as I moved uh, over here, I've, what I've learned is I'm pretty much in the Midwest in Owensboro. Most of the folks from from this part of the state over towards Paducah and the western part of the state would uh, would pretty well identify themselves as more Midwestern, I guess. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm basically three hours from St. Louis. Cool. Did you, um, did you grow up in this area? I was going to get into you telling me about, about your background, but I was curious if you were from this part of Kentucky, like this is your born and raised hometown or are you a transplant? No, I'm, I'm a transplant. Um, I grew up near Mammoth Cave National Park. Um, I am a Kentucky guy through and through. Um, I went to a small liberal arts school in Kentucky called Center uh, College. Um, I went to the University of Louisville Dental School I uh, did my residency at the University of Kentucky, and then um, my wife, who happens to be a pediatrician, um, also went to University of Louisville Dental or Medical School, and then uh, University of Kentucky for a residency. And uh, her parents live about thirty miles from here, so that's kind of how we ended up in this part of the state. Uh, was that kind of a factor in when you, cause you, I think you said you did a startup, I mean, approaching 20 years, how uh, 20 years now, but two decades ago when that was all in the works, um, you know, her being a pediatrician and kind of being this tag team combo, did you guys kind of plan this out? Like, tell me about this, you know, going back two decades ago, what did that startup journey look like? How did you settle on this area when you were, you know, is this kind of a growing area you identified or, or you kind of identify that there is maybe a, a, a void or no pediatric dentist or tell me about what those first years looked like. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we um, kind of looked um, at a few places in Kentucky when we finished. Um, we really enjoyed Louisville. Um, we both had a lot of friends from college who had gravitated there. But uh, if you kind of drew a map of Louisville, there was a pediatric dentist on every street corner. And mm-hmm. so I knew that I wanted to start up. Um, so we kind of looked at Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is uh, kind of central Kentucky on I-65, maybe about an hour north of Nashville um, as a potential landing spot. And then we looked at Owensboro. Um, ultimately, I was going to start up a practice either place, and both probably would have been okay for me, uh, demographics. But then as far as for my wife, the better fit job-wise was in Owensboro. And come to find out, it was by far the best decision we could have ever made. There was one pediatric dentist here, and um, it just exploded basically over the last 20 years for me. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit more? It's it's a part of the world that I haven't spent a lot of time in, but what's the uh, demographic like there? How many people? Um, what kind of what what are the population characteristics? It sounds like it's growing, but just tell me a little bit more about the area you practice in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's actually the fourth largest city in Kentucky. Um, it's about sixty thousand. Uh, the county's about a hundred. We probably draw from about a quarter million. Mm. Um, we have a lot of rural folks who drive, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to see us. Um, We have, um, you know, basically an area that needed um, probably more pediatric dentists than what they had at that time. So it ended up being a, you know, a good fit for us. Uh, I think one of the things you had mentioned too was you, you know, part of your practice, and I'm I'm curious if this has changed as you've grown, but um, it sounds like seeing Medicaid's been a, 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 you know, a component of your practice, which is not the same across the board in our profession, as you know. So, um, it seems like a lot of the guys in that Tennessee, Kentucky, I've had on the podcast, um, Virginia, you know, it's, it seems like most of the guys, you know, kind of value seeing a Medicaid population. And it seems like that's a fairly decent, you know, their Appalachia or whatever, but that Medicaid is a pretty significant part, um, of the, you know, the community population. So, um, is Medicaid, you know, still a pretty good, good part of your practice? Has that increased or decreased over time? Like what's, what's your patient population look like there? Yeah, our patient population in, um, in our practice is probably about 35% Medicaid. Um, I think somebody said a statistic recently was something of around 50% of, uh, children that are born in Kentucky are born into a Medicaid family. So, um, Owensboro itself is, I mean, it's it's urban, but really it's rural. It's a lot of farming ground, um, probably like a lot of the Midwest. Um, you know, there's a lot of farms here. Um, the city is obviously with a population of 60,000. I mean, it's has most of your things that you would expect to have in kind of a larger city. Um, you know, we do have a Starbucks. Um, as I hear you talk on your podcast yeah. a lot about who does and who doesn't have a Starbucks, we have uh-huh. two. Cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, we see um, we see a large population of, of Medicaid patients, um, and then just a large population of of you know insured patients. Um, the schools, the hospital, those are the type folks that would you know come to us from a uh, 
you know, having insurance. And then we do see some private pay as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds like your practice is, you know, you kind of do a nice blend of things like you do some oral conscious sedation, some IV, some hospital based, you know, like, and then all the other bread and butter stuff. What kind of, what kind of procedures are you, are you normally doing? Yeah, I think we basically do everything here. You know, um, it's one of those places where um, about the only thing that doesn't get done in Owensboro, Kentucky is some of your ASA three and four kids that get sent off to um, to probably the University of Louisville to the Children's Hospital. But otherwise, yeah, we do a lot of restorative dentistry just like you do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing just your bread and butter, lots of teeth getting fixed, lots of cavities, lots of decay. Um I did a lot of ORs um, when I first started. Um, I've had an associate now since 2019. He primarily does most of the ORs in the practice now. Um, I do IV sedation with PDAA. Um, I do some oral conscious sedation, although I have tended to find that I'm getting a little bit further away from that as I continue to practice. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's pretty much just a, an everything practice. Mm -hmm. You know, Jay, can we talk about that? Tell me, uh, how do you structure that? You brought in an associate, which you've been at that point have been open 18 years or 16, 18 years, however long it's been. Um, and then you brought in an associate. How did you schedule that? Did you, did you cut down to part-time and you guys split the schedule or are you there at overlapping times in the clinic? Um, you know, I was playing with some of that idea in theory today, what it would look, look like if I had a, another person helping out, tell me how you, like, what was the process to bringing him on? Um, and just like how you logistically kind of structure that with the schedule and everything. Yeah, sure. Casey, you know, um, like I said, you know, I started the startup from scratch and, um, you know, I listened to a lot of stuff you talk about and you have that, you know, initial massive growth over the course of that first two, three, four, five years that you practice. And um, my practice went from basically myself and a dental hygienist to adding an assistant, to adding another assistant, to adding a dental hygienist. Um, And we were pretty stable um, in my initial office up to about year nine. And I would say it probably years nine and 10, we kind of hit a wall Um, We kind of got flat in our growth. The number of patients we were seeing kind of got flat. The income kind of got flat. And I think at that point, it was kind of like I was looking to search for something that I needed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up using um, consulting firm, Roger Levine's consulting firm at that point in time. And so that was like 2012-13. and they just really kind of added some life to my practice. Um, we started to grow again. We started to see more new patients. And it just kind of got me fired up again to saying, hey, what do I really want to do long term? And I think at that point, long term for me was, you know, I was in a 2,500 square foot, six operatory um, office that I was paying 12 bucks a square foot for super cheap. Um, didn't really have a lot of rent, but I knew that I wanted to own something. I knew that I wanted to bring in somebody. I knew that I had something good and I really wanted to see what it could do. Uh, keep, keep talking. So, I mean, at that point you're like, okay, so bringing in an associate makes sense. Um, you obviously did some homework. I like that you kind of had a reinvigoration and get fired up again. Okay. We've been flat. What do we need to do to take this to the next level? So 
I guess uh, you found this associate, um, and then did you start him full time and say, okay, I'm going to cut back and work less, and maybe I'll work three days, and he can take two days, and maybe one of those days is in the OR, or did you have enough? Did you get into an office where you had enough chairs to kind of both be in there at the same time, and were you ever kind of butting heads or not enough room? Like I, I just I, I have to imagine there's maybe a little bit of a like some growing pains there as you kind of got uh, acclimated to all that. Yeah, you know, I actually did the uh, kind of the car before the horse, and I did the uh, I did the build out first. So probably about 2015, 16, I started really looking at where I wanted to be um, in terms of location in my town, um, and so I started and broke ground in 2016 on a 6,000 square foot, 14 operatory office. Nice. And so um, once I did that. You know, I knew that I had the place for somebody. And as you will probably find out in, in rural Missouri, it's it's somewhat hard to find that person. You know, you look and I talked to a few people over time about having an associate. I even thought about going with like, you know, trying to find a headhunter somewhere to find somebody. And um, I had the place for somebody. And then um Patrick Gilbert is my associate now, and he just kind of walked in um, to my practice, and we started talking in 2018, and in 2019, he started working, and so obviously, having this big of an office, I really didn't have to change much of anything in terms of how I practice or how he practices. Um, we probably realistically have room for a third person someday, which is kind of the hope as well. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> Did you have to hire some more staff or did you have any staffing concerns as far as this is another, um, I guess, barrier that's gotten brought up is if you bring in an associate, you know, you, those days that you haven't been working, you know, you said you don't work Fridays. Maybe you started thinking about taking some Thursdays off. Well, all of a sudden, all the staff that thought they had a Friday off or had are used to having Fridays off. Now you're trying to get them in there working. Um, I just, I feel some friction with like getting staff to work in more hours. So you're hiring more staff, you're making them work more days. Did you have much of an issue with that or, or were you able to just hire some extra staff and, and like hired a few assistants and you're able to make it work without too much of an issue? Yeah. You know, Casey, probably the hardest part about that was, is that 2019 was right before 2020. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, really what happened at that point was, um, we were able to add staff, but as you know, with each staff person that you add, that definitely does create some different dynamics within your office. So, you know, there were certain growing pains for sure. We did have some staff turnover and whether that was because we were adding more staff or whether it was because of, you know, that time through COVID, post-COVID, um, we were going from basically six, seven employees when it was just me um, to now we're at 14. So, you know, that was a bit of a challenge finding capable, qualified staff, which is what we have all struggled with um, for the last couple of years was a challenge finding employees who suddenly, you know, you're paying 25% more for was a challenge. But I think that the amazing thing about it is, is that once we got it right and once we got everybody here, you see all these people in the office. And now, you know, we've got 125 patients coming through the door a day. Wow. Um, 
It's a ginormous amount of people. It looks like chaos, but it is super organized. And I would just, I call it organized chaos. I really do because it's just, it's amazing how well the staff now runs um, since we've been doing this now for a few years. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, an office manager or, or somebody that helps coordinate this? Cause it sounds like, you know, you mentioned your wife's a pediatrician, so she's got her own full career and everything that she's doing. Um, do you have another key, key team member who's kind of an office manager who helps sort of orchestrate all this and helps you create this? Or did you pretty much try to, you know, quarterback this whole thing yourself? You know, I think I tried to quarterback it a lot in the beginning. And then um, once I got through um, doing the uh, work with uh, Roger Levine and talking to, you know, consultants about your practice, I ended up uh, – one of my wife's best friends um, kind of took over in a transition during that time when I was doing that in like 13, 14. And one of the things that we decided she was, uh, you know, a master's in healthcare administration. And so she really looked at everything for me and she found an office manager for me. And I've had the same girl now for since 2015 and having an office manager to handle your day to day um, operations and not have to have somebody coming into your office every five minutes about something silly that's going on in your office was a huge asset. And I mean, I, I can't imagine running an office like this without having somebody who manages that for me on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Man. So <clears throat> you're seeing 125 kids a day, even like d- divide that in two. I mean, you guys are still bumping even when it was by yourself. I mean, 60 some kids. I feel like, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast, but you know, everybody's different and you know, it seems like more, the more co- complex your patients are and the harder your demographic is, the more, you know, complicated treatment plans, the higher carries risk, the longer these conversations are going to be. But I have a, I have a hard time getting past about the 50 kid mark. Like if I hit 50 kids for me, that's like, you know, ops and hygiene and new patients and all that. It's like, it seems about the max. And if I push it beyond that, I start to kind of get behind, but you know, granted it's a lot of half mouth cases, a lot of GA write-ups, a lot of recalls where we're kind of watching some small stuff, a lot of discussion involved. Um, You know, it'd be different if every kid just had super clean teeth and you could plow through them. But I, uh, I just, I have, I'm, I'm so fascinated by, you know, providers that can see 70, 80 or more kids, you know, you start to get that upper limits, but I think I'm just too much of a talker to, you know, I have a hard time getting up out of the chair sometimes. And I think that's kind of my Achilles heel there to some degree. Yeah. We'll probably get to it in a few minutes, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty big talker too. And I, I spend a lot of time with my families and, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in a few minutes about why that is, but, you know, I think you're probably what, Two, three years out, is that correct? How far out are you? Yep, yep, two and a half years. Okay, so up until really 2014, 15, when I hired my office manager, I was probably still only at about 50 or 55 patients a day too. Mm. Um, So I really wasn't that much different than where you were probably 10, 11 years into my practice. Um, One of the things that I do... um, and I still do even to this point, seeing that many patients a day, I still only do probably somewhere between 10, 12, 14 procedures a day. Um, I've always found that I take great pride in my restorative work and 
I've never tried to push the envelope of CCC patients and do treatment, treatment, treatment. You know, um, I do 30 minutes, sometimes 40 minutes and sometimes hour treatments, depending on what I'm doing. But I don't do a whole lot of restorative in the afternoon. So pretty much my afternoon is spending a lot of time kind of on roller skates, going between parents, talking to parents, talking to kids um, and doing most of my treatment in the morning. So it's just gotten to the point where, you know, probably in that 15, 16 range, I went ahead and added one extra column of hygiene. And that's kind of where that extra, you know, 20 or so patients comes from to where I bump myself up to seeing like 70 or 80 a day. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Um, I have one, one last question before we kind of switch topic of conversation here a little bit, but you know, now that you've been at this for two decades, I keep going to that, that buzzword there, but two decades. Cause that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. That's an accomplishment to be doing pediatric dentistry for 20 years. Cause we don't have an easy job, but, um, I guess I was going to ask, you know, compared to when you started to now, as far as, you know, things in our profession, um, the way that you do dentistry, um, it, you just, what things have you, have, have changed? You know, it seems like you got a lot of pediatric dentists that still maybe on the restorative side, do the same very, you know, um, rubber dam, block everything, amalgams. And then you've got guys that change everything, parents back, not back, parents changing, you know, the way dentistry's done. Just what, what kind of things from a big picture standpoint have you seen ch- change from when you opened to now? Probably when I started, um, the biggest thing was parents um, were a little easier to work with. So anyways, we were talking Sorry, about what uh, what big changes you've seen, like what changes you've made, how you yeah. practice dentistry different from when you started to now. What big things have been different about the way you do dentistry? For sure. Um, you know, I think probably the biggest thing is, you know, it, it's a little more challenging to deal with parents 20 years later. Um, I think parents are a little more demanding than they were um, when I first started. Um, but for the most part, things are pretty similar here. You know, I think... You know, I grew up in an area where families were kind of a big center focus. And I think this community is kind of that way. So I really haven't seen a lot of change in that regard. Um, You know, obviously from like a treatment standpoint, um, I do see a little less um, sedation going on in our world, a little more hospital dentistry happening, a little more IV sedation happening. Um, you know, you've got a lot of trend with, um, you know, SDF and some of the, um, the treatment that goes along with that. But I mean, as far as my practice goes, we're still pretty bread and butter pediatric dentistry here. So I don't, you know, I don't think there's a, there's a whole lot that has changed, um, over the past 20 years in that regard. I feel you. Yeah. I just always find it such, I, I like asking different guests that because it seems like, you know, there's not a lot of other professions besides pediatric dentistry where there's such a huge spectrum of how to treat these kids in different ways. You know, I've had guys on the podcast that, um, I just had a conversation with Sean Whalen, who is a pediatric dentist in, in, uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, he was on the podcast probably a year and a half ago, but he's very like traditional, like IN block, rubber dam, you know, like complete carries removal. You don't watch decay. And you got that all the way up to um, Dr. Cohen, who I had on a few weeks ago, who's who's doing these, you know, 
scoop out the decay with no local anesthetic and put a glass ionomer in as a temporary. And then if it's asymptomatic, call cry, just like there's, there's no like plastic surgeons society that treats, you know, has such a spectrum in the way that they treat. So it's just such a, it's so interesting to see all the different ways that you can creative ways to tackle and be a pediatric dentist, you know? So it's just, it's a, it's an interesting conversation and thing to ask, ask the guests on the podcast. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's kind of one of the interesting things about bringing in an associate who is younger than you too. You know, mm -hmm. you do see, you do see that, you know, I probably was at a point in my career where I was maybe watching things a little too far. I mean, you know, you're booked out three months for a restorative treatment. Well, this is a little closer, you know, Hey, we'll wait on this. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you bring in an associate and, you know, um, he was probably a little bit younger, doing a lot more SDF than I was, um, would be one thing I can think of. But what he saw was is, hey, you know, I put SDF on this tooth and six months later, it's got a big gigantic hole and it hurts and maybe I should have filled that tooth. And I'm the kind of guy that probably was, I would have filled that tooth. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a nice mesh to kind of have the um, somewhat older pediatric dentist and the somewhat younger pediatric dentist kind of come together. And I think that really blends our practice really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'd believe that too. You know, it's kind of nice to, you guys kind of learn from each other and then benefit from each other. Plus the added benefit of you've got more capacity to see more kids. And then, you know, it's kind of just, I always picture like a faucet with your treatment planning. You know, if you're, if you're booked out forever, you know, you just, you, um, tighten up the faucet a little bit and you, you watch a, a few more of these small little lesions. And if you've got availability, you can kind of adjust, but getting that associate in there, I think would, um, seems to make a huge difference. So that's cool. It sounds, it sounds like you guys have a good relationship and a good fit there, which I know is not something that, uh, that every associate and owner can say. So I'm glad you guys have, you know, got a good thing going over there. That's cool. Yeah, it's been a great fit, you know, it really has. And then what it, you know, what it really does for our community is it does I'm kind of one of the big things that, that I find that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very big upon is access to care for kids. And so, you know, it definitely has allowed us to see and treat a lot more kids within our area that probably wouldn't have got treatment before, because I don't know what it's like where you are, but, you know, there's not a lot of Medicaid providers within our area. So um, having two providers definitely allows us to make sure that kids in this area are getting treated. Yep, for sure. Jay, let's switch gears a little bit. And I, I, I feel like I just kind of went on and on asking you about your practice, but I wanted to leave some time to talk about this because um, I'm, I'm interested. But one of the things that you had, had mentioned and we kind of talked about briefly was you had some changes in your – I'm going to totally butcher this, by the way, because my, my knowledge of um, – cochlear implants and audiology concerns is very low, which is kind of embarrassing because my sister is an audiologist, oddly enough, um, and like works with cochlear implants on like a daily basis. And I, I still something I know very little about, but, uh, I, I sounds like it's a journey that you've been through and it's something I kind of wanted to learn more about. Cause obviously huge part of our job is listening to parents, listening to kids, you know, using your, your ears to help you do your job. So, um, can you kind of share your story on that and kind of fill me in with what the background is with all that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you look back on what you could hear and what you couldn't hear and what you were supposed to hear and what you didn't hear. Um, and once you become very hard of hearing, you realize that there's a lot of stuff that you've, you know, that you've missed that you thought was just normal that you missed. And, um, for me, 
it was probably somewhere in my residency program that I kind of became aware that I was starting to lose my hearing. Um, I didn't know why, and I was still able to function pretty well. Um, I started wearing hearing aids at about age 35. Um, I wore a specific set at that point in time that gave me maybe, I would say, five years of of improvement and allowed me to function a little better than what I was before. Um, I switched to a different type of hearing aid in my early 40s. Um, and probably really by probably my mid 40s, um, I was just getting to the point where I was pretty non-functional. Um, I'm amazing at reading lips. Um, and, you know, some folks who might know me on this podcast have probably talked to me at some point in time and may have no idea that I was hard of hearing. Others may have looked at this and gone, you know, I remember that guy. He was kind of an asshole yeah. um, because, you know, I probably didn't hear what they said. I might have ignored them. Um, so once I kind of became aware that I was hard of hearing, I'm the guy that sat with my patients forever. You know, I mean, I never wanted to get up and walk away from a parent who might have thought that I was just being a physician or a dentist who didn't listen to them or didn't hear their needs or anything like that. So, you know, I was always that person who wanted to make sure that I spent the adequate amount of time. Um, I was really lucky that we're in a profession that we're face to face with our patients and our parents all day long. So being hard of hearing, you know, I was able to compensate for a lot of stuff. Whereas if I'd had a job that I would have had to have been on the phone all the time, it probably got to the point where I wouldn't have been able to have that job. Um, and so once I hit kind of my mid forties, I kind of got to the point where I knew that I needed to get this done. Um, but you're at that point too, where you got two young kids you know, you got this successful practice. Yeah, sure, you're hard of hearing, but do you really want to go through this and the potential complications that could happen might play a role in that? So I kind of hesitated for a little while, but probably, like I say, by my mid-40s, I was pretty well content to the idea that this was something I needed to have done. And so um, I ended up having surgery um in July of 2022, it took between COVID and then, um, you know, getting everything approved, getting everything with your insurance approved to have this procedure done. It was about a two to three year journey to get to this point to where I had surgery in July. Did, uh, and a couple questions then, um, did they ever figure out or are you aware of what caused the hearing loss? Was it like natural hearing loss and it was just propagated by our job? you know, hazards like with the high speed hand pieces and suction all day, or was there a genetic component to it or what, what caused this? I think my, my ENTs and my audiologists would probably say it's just something genetic that was there that I was just going to end up having hearing loss, but I don't have any family history of that. So, you know, that's not for sure. Obviously we're in an occupation that um, does have some concern with you know, levels of sound based on the high-speed hand pieces that we use. You know, it could have been that. It could have been a product of the fact that, you know, we, we talk about hunting a little bit, Casey, and, you know, 
I mean, maybe when I was younger, I don't know that I wore hearing protection like I should have when I shot a lot of guns. I mean, there's a lot of different things out there. So whatever it may be, you're really never going to know. The hope is, is that, you know, I had no family history of it. So hopefully none of my children will have any history of this as well. So hopefully it's just something that, that I get and nobody else does. Okay. So then you went through and did you get like bilateral cochlear implants or, or just on one side? I don't, don't, can you maybe answer that question and then tell me a little bit more for the, myself and those who aren't familiar, like what is a cochlear implant? What is, what's the device? How does it work? Like, like tell me more about the procedure and then the device and how you use it on a daily basis and those things. Yeah, sure. So, um, I did unilateral, um, you know, I have, pretty much bilateral hearing loss in both ears. I do wear a hearing aid in my left ear and I pretty much left it just up to my ENT to say, you know, pick a side. And so he opted to do a cochlear implant on my right side. Um, basically what that is, is it's um, a set of electrodes that are implanted. Um, they go through your mastoid bone. Um, it's a um, about a two and a half hour uh, general anesthesia procedure in which they um, implant the electrodes. Um, and then you have an external device that you wear that's similar to a hearing aid. Um, it has a magnet that then attaches um, on your skull. And um, you, after surgery, you have about a month period of time where you do you know, just healing from the surgery. And then they turn on the, uh, the implant at that point in time. So I've been... Uh, activated as they call it since, uh, mid August of 2022. Wow. Okay. So you went through COVID when everybody was required to wear a mask and you were relying a lot on lip reading and you had to put up with that with like minimal, I don't know what percentage your hearing, you know, capacity was if it was 20%, but that had to be a rough time when you couldn't read lips anymore. Yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty challenging time. And, um, you know, I guess was somewhat lucky to be in a rural area where um, maybe folks might not have been masked as much as they might have been in a different area, kind of like you probably are in mm -hmm. where, you know, we weren't going to dismiss any patients who didn't show up in our office without a mask or, you know, anything like that. So, well, I was lucky that I was, I was also to the point where I would just tell the patient, you know, at this point, look, I'm really hard of hearing. And if you don't want to, you know, talk to me without a mask on, my staff was great. They would take a mask off and I would read their lips. And so, yeah, it was, it was an amazingly challenging time for me. Um, especially since I kind of already thought that this was the route I was going to go. And then this kind of all happened. And so it just kind of obviously made it blatantly obvious that this is what I needed to do. So once, uh, once everything kind of came back to earth in this world, then we, we decided to go ahead and have the surgery done. And like I said, you know, it took, took the better part of about 12 to 18 months to get, you know, appointments with your ENT. Um, I had this done at Vanderbilt university in Nashville, Tennessee. So to get in with a, you know, with a specialist there who basically just does, um, cochlear implants, um, to be able to get your insurance approved as, you know, to get all that taken care of, um, to get your MRIs, your CTs, all the stuff done. Um, it was about a 12 to 18 month period before surgery actually took place. What, how, was it a real emotional thing when, you know, you see those 
videos and stuff when kids that never hear was congenital deafness, you know, turn on their cochlear implants for the first time or people that have never heard, you know, and they get real emotional. Like what kind of moment was that? I mean, you had been able to hear before obviously, but was that like just such a, Oh my God, this is so crazy. I can hear again. Or did it take a long time to get used to it? Like, what was that like when you finally got your hearing back to a certain degree? Yeah, I think the emotional part probably came a little later than that. Um, the turn on was, um, it was different, and obviously, and you know, you kind of had that expectation that it was a little going to be, it was going to be different. Um, but it was, if you can uh, use an analogy of what um, you know, Alvin Simon and Theodore sound like, that's kind of like what everything sounded like. That first initial turn on, you know, you just everything sounded very chipmunk like for me. I guess that's the best way to say it, or robotic maybe, and. Um, so they spent probably about an hour, this is a month after surgery, spent about an hour kind of, I guess, tuning you in. And then they sent you off on your way um, for a month. So this was like mid-August to mid-September. And, um, you know, it's just basically a learning process. You have different apps on your phone where you can listen to, um, you know, listen to different um basically homework, I guess you would call it, where you're listening to different sounds, you're listening to different words, um, you're repeating words, you're doing stuff like that. And um, so I don't think there was really like a, a moment where like, oh my gosh, this is so emotional. This is unbelievable. This is awesome. But at the same time, it was, you know, it was, it was better than what it was prior to surgery. Um, I feel like probably the, the, aha moment for it was probably within a couple of weeks of having it turned on and you know we're sitting there and I'm listening or reading something about um about like kind of what I should be doing rehab wise and somebody was like you need to start listening to podcasts you need to start listening to talk radio so basically when I'm in the car I just listen to talk radio nonstop. Um, and I was listening to ESPN radio and they were talking about, uh, you know, the upcoming NFL season and I'm all of a sudden I'm hearing a word and then I'm hearing two words and then all of a sudden I understand the conversation. And, you know, for most folks, obviously that's just an everyday thing. But for me, that was huge because I hadn't listened to the radio in 10 years. So, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I haven't talked on the phone in 10 years. Um, I haven't done anything you know, basically like that at all. So that was kind of the moment where I was going like that. And then somehow, you know, I started thinking about, well, what's out there in the world of pediatric dentistry? And so as you start looking, I knew that AAPD had, you know, their um, podcast. And so somehow your podcast came up in my group of stuff. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I started listening to one of your podcasts and I'm like, this is, this is really great. And, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by the fact I can hear, I mean, all the above. And so like basically for the last six months now, I mean, every time a new podcast comes out, I've listened to all your stuff since 21 and I've listened to basically everything you've got. And it's just, <laughs> it, it's, it's really cool. And so I was like, heck, I'm just going to like stalk this guy and I'm going to call him up and I'm going to say, Hey man, you know, I'd like to do a podcast with you because I really enjoy this. And, you know, six months ago, I couldn't have enjoyed this at all. So, yeah, I mean, it, that's the point at which it kind of became amazing to me. Yeah. And so um, now it's just like I can hear, you know, oh. and it's, I mean, it is, it's amazing. The fact that what I've probably missed um, 
for all the time when I should have done this maybe before, sure. But, you know, definitely no regrets on doing it. That's for sure, Casey. Oh man, dude. I appreciate the the feel goods for that, man. That's really cool. And you know, I'm I'm glad I'm glad I gave you some some stuff to some content to listen to while you're getting your your hearing all dialed in. That's really, really cool story, man. I got I got some warm and fuzzies from that one. So I, I appreciate that. And honestly, it's I, I tell people this, you know, people ask me as far as like podcast guests, I probably get two or three requests a week from different people and organizations and businesses about wanting to be on the podcast. And most of them I turn down because I kind of have my own vibe of what I'm after, but it's not every day you hear about a, you know, an, a in the trenches, pediatric dentist, like everybody else that's listening, who had the hearing loss that you did and then had to go through some of these things. And, um, and I guess kind of related to that, you know, another thing I wanted to ask was like, did you, did it change the way that you do dentistry at all? Like once you started hearing better and you had your cochlear implant, did you start noticing like, okay, maybe while I was doing my local anesthetic this way, I noticed that kids were fussy and I never caught that before. Like I could imagine like it would be hard to not catch up the subtle sounds, you know, of, of things that kids are doing and saying. So did, did that change the way you did dentistry at all? Man, the kids are a lot louder. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, I don't think it really changed anything about how I practice. Um, it's just that, you know, I had an amazing staff. And they knew that I couldn't hear and they covered for me whenever I did screw up and get up too quick from a patient. And so, you know, they were fantastic about that. And it's just, I think it's just amazing to them too. Now it's just like a normal office now. I'm sure it's just like your office and every other office where like, you know, I can have communication with everybody in my office. I can just, you know, they don't, it probably relieved them of a lot of duties that they had for me. So that's probably really the only major difference in anything is it probably did take a lot off of them um, because they were um, key players in making sure that I could do everything that I could do to be successful as I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just kind of highlights the importance of good staff as well. You know, it's, it's whenever there's a problem in the office, it's like, having good staff seems to be the answer to a, about 90% of the problems, but that's cool. You had a staff to kind of pick you up and, um, and help with that. So, so you really haven't had these, the, the new ears, I guess, for a while and, and this kind of a new thing, but, um, I guess I'm just trying to tie this in, you know, what, besides just like improving your quality of life, taking more time off, enjoying the ability to hear better. Um, it sounds like you're kind of taking a little more personal time. You taking you're taking Fridays off and doing a half day on Thursday, you said your wife retired. What kind of things are, you know, you're kind of um, somewhat entering that like little, little bit later established stages of your career. What, what's kind of in the future for, you know, for yourself and the practice, are you going to keep, keep hustling and grinding for a while? You like what you do? Are you looking forward to maybe continue to take more time off, grow the practice, you know, or are you at the point where it's like, you know, I got hearing, I'm trying to slowly scale down and maybe travel and enjoy life more with being able to hear. I'm just kind of curious, like what, what are your plans going forward at this point? You know, I think one of the things is we've always been, um, my wife and I both big, um, work-life balance people. Um, so that's not going to really be anything new for us. We've always traveled a lot. Um, you know, I did four days a week pretty much from straight from my beginning of my practice, but I did a lot of ORs on Fridays uh, when there was availability at my surgery center. Um, but with my boys, I have two boys who are 20 and 17. 
Um, when they got to be about nine and six, um, we created something called Boy Friday. And so my wife worked um, as a pediatrician Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, and Friday. She was off Thursday. So on Fridays, once my boys got kind of old enough, we could do some really cool stuff. Um, we started just doing awesome stuff in the summertime. I mean, we would do anything you could possibly think of. We would go to a major league baseball game. We would go to Mammoth Cave National Park and go in the caves. Um, we got in the car one weekend and we drove to see a buddy of mine I went to dental school with. Then we went red snapper fishing all weekend long and then drove back home Sunday night at midnight and um, went to work the next day. So, you know, I've always put my family, you know, at the highest point of this. Um, and so I think that what I basically did then, you know, for that next little bit was I pretty much grounded out for, you know, four days a week. Um, I incorporated my ORs kind of into my normal work week schedule. If I could get time on a Monday or a Wednesday, I would, I would do that. Um, but now after, you know, 20 years of doing this and my wife decided to go ahead and step away from her pediatric practice about two years ago, um, it kind of got me to the point where I want to um, travel more, do more, um, live life, but I still want to practice. So now I have no real plans to um, to give up any more of my practice. Um, I'm taking off Thursday afternoon, so basically I'm going to be down to three and a half days a week. But um, I have a 20-year-old son who's a freshman in college who thinks that someday he might want to, you know, sit in this office and hang out with me. So um, mm -hmm. that would definitely drive you to wanting to continue your practice. Um, but, no, I really love what I do. Um, I just love also, you know, seeing the world and traveling and hunting and fishing and spending time with my family and my friends. So I just want to do that a whole lot. And, you know, I'm a big numbers guy too, Casey, and I know you are too. And you talk a lot about numbers in a lot of your, your podcast. And mm -hmm. um, I worked 165 days last year and I made the most money I've ever made in 165 days. And that just is crazy, but that's how successful going to a place where you're needed versus going to a place that you want to go is for starting your own practice. And that's, you know, probably when you talk about advice for people, and I know you've said it on some of your stuff before, you know, live wherever you can be the most successful. Don't worry about that place that you're gonna, you know, that you have to live the big city or whatever, because I mean, once your kids, and you'll find this out as your 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 newborn grows, once you once you kids hit a certain age, man, the circle gets really small. You know, it really gets small. You're basically going from your office to your house to your kids' soccer game and back again. And it really doesn't matter where you live. But if you're in a place that your practice can succeed, you can be so successful. And mm -hmm. so that's probably one of the biggest things that I would, you know, I would tell people when they're when they're first coming out of school. That's awesome. So are you saying that you can safely say that you've done well in uh, Owensboro, Kentucky versus if you would have just gone into Louisville? Is that right? Oh, I think definitely so. <laughs> I mean, I think there's no question that, um, you know, finding that, that niche and that spot 
is, you know, especially if you're going to start your own practice. And I mean, I think you, you know, you've, you've said that a lot too, and a lot of your, your, your stuff that, you know, finding the spot where there's a need is so important to being, you know, to being successful. And so, yeah, I think that that's definitely the case that this, this town's been, I mean, it's been great to me. I mean, I'm, like I said, you know, I'm essentially a transplant. I mean, I'm not from here, but now having been here 20 years, you know, it, it's definitely, definitely a part of, of my family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, this was a cool story, man. I, I love hearing about, you know, your practice journey and how you've evolved as a provider. And, um, you know, we have a lot in common and it sounds like we practice in a real similar demographic. So it's always cool to see other guys and, and gals out there that have kind of walked the steps in front of me. And I, I, I learn as much from the podcast as from guests as, as they do from everything else. So, um, so it's great hearing your story. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, you know, as I wrap up, I was just going to have you throw your contact out there. Maybe there's another pediatric dentist in Kentucky that wants to pick your brain, or maybe somebody with some hearing loss background or anything like that. What's a good way to get in touch with you if somebody wants to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can reach me at the letter J C R E W S D M D at gmail.com. Um, and if you want to look up anything about my practice and then contact me at all, uh, my website is kids, K-I-D-S, dentist of Owensboro, and that's O-W-E-N-S-B-O-R-O.com. And yeah, I mean, I, I I thoroughly enjoy the opportunity to talk to anybody about anything that uh, both from practice standpoint or anything to do with uh work, life, travel, love to travel, or anything to do with my hearing loss, obviously, I would, I'd love to share that with anybody. So I appreciate it, Casey. Cool. Jay, uh, hey, next time you're driving through St. Louis, just shoot me a text anytime. Let's do a duck hunt or let's let's find something to do because we got too much in common to not hang out next time you're driving through through my part of the world. Sounds great, my man. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth Podcast. Be sure to DM our host, Casey Getz, on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.